Okay, we've been looking at a series in the Minor Prophets. The last, that's the last few books of the Old Testament. And we've been looking at the theme of but God. You know, things happen, but God comes in. And um, the word minor, in this case, minor prophets, is not anything to do with either their height or uh, the importance of their book. You know, it's, it's purely to do with the size of the book. You know, so if you compare it with, say, with Jeremiah or Isaiah, 60-odd chapters or whatever, you know, these are much shorter. So that's why they're minor. They're minor in size, not minor in importance. However, Hosea is 14 chapters long, so it's impossible to relate the whole story. But let me just uh, read to you Hosea chapter 1 and the first um, few verses, up to just just verses 1 to 3. It says, and I'll, I'll read from that in case it's a different version to mine. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, son of Beeri, during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. He went on for quite a while, didn't he? Kings of Judah, and during the reign of Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, king of Israel. When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go, take yourself an adulterous wife and children of unfaithfulness, because the land is guilty of the vilest adultery in departing from the Lord. So he married Goma, a daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. As with most Old Testament prophetic writings, it's largely a series of warnings to the people of Israel of a judgment to come if they continue along their path of sinfulness and rebellion against God and rebellion against the laws of God. Hosea is slightly different, as we're going to see. But firstly, it's strange because of the, it's different because of the strange calling that God places upon Hosea, which we've just read. And secondly, it's different because there's a strong message that comes through of grace and forgiveness that comes alongside the warnings. In order to better understand the prophecy of Hosea, I think it would be helpful to understand something of the context into which he lived and prophesied. He lived in Israel. Now, at this time, Israel, which was once one nation, had separated, and the northern half of it was still called Israel, and the southern half of it was called Judah. And so he lived in the northern half, which is still called Israel, the northern kingdom. But it had become a spiritually very mixed-up people. The people of Israel were spiritually very mixed-up people. On the surface, they still spoke the language of God. They still spoke about Yahweh, the true God, worshipping Yahweh. But underneath all that, there was a kind of mishmash of pagan practices and Baal worship that they'd inherited and, and taken on board by the people around them that were not Jewish people. 
They'd kind of absorbed a lot of the pagan practices of the nations around them. So on the surface, they were still talking the language of Yahweh, but in reality, they were living completely differently to that, just like the people around them. You know, and in the same way, there's, there's a very similar, there are very similarities today. Some today might say, well, it doesn't matter what you call him. You can call him God. You can call him Jesus, Allah, Buddha, Vishnu. It doesn't matter. It's all about God and worshipping him. It's all the same God that we're worshipping. That's what they say. It's not true, by the way. I'll just clarify that. It's not true. Okay, it does matter. And the only way to God, the Father, is through Jesus, the Son, by the inward work of revelation of the Holy Spirit. Okay, there's only one way to God, and that's through Jesus. But people say, doesn't matter. We're all worshipping the same God anyway, aren't we? Doesn't matter. We're all worshipping the same God. Baal worship was a sort of a pagan, naturistic worship. Baal was seen very much as the husband of the land. If you like, he was the husband of Mother Nature. Mother Nature was was female. Baal was the pagan husband of Mother Nature. And by their worship involved sexually joining with priests and the priests of Baal um, and maybe the temple prostitutes, you, you entered into a sexual kind of union. And in that, you were kind of entering into the divine benefits of the union of Baal with the land. So, you know, there was, there was that sense of unity and com- you know, joining together, which was expressed sexually. And of course, your sacrifice, this act, would no doubt inspire a good harvest. You know, that it was all part of a kind of naturistic, um, paganistic worship that, that was completely far and removed from the worship of Yahweh, the true God. They were, they'd, in, they'd inherited all of these pagan practices, which is why... Hosea prophesies over them, and this is in uh, chapter 2, verse 5. It says, Their mother has been unfaithful and has conceived them in disgrace. She said, I will go after my lovers who give me, fo- give me my food and my water, my wool and my linen and my oil, olive oil and my drink. Now, this is in part speaking about um, Hosea's wife, Gomer, but it's also speaking about the people. It's, it's showing that actually they felt that it was their lover, Baal, who was giving them the food and water and oil. And if we just read uh, a bit further, um, I'm not sure, I didn't put the first number down. Um, just go on a little bit, Steve. Um, verse 8 she has not acknowledged that I God says I was the one who gave her the grain the new wine and oil who lavished on her the silver and gold which she used for Baal so what God's saying is 
you know, you, you're attributing all of the good things. You're attributing all of the harvest, everything good that you get. You're saying it comes from Baal. You're saying it comes because you're worshipping Baal. You're going into the temple, into the, the Baal temple, committing adultery with the, the temple prostitutes. And you say, That's what's giving us a good harvest. You're not acknowledging God's saying to the people. You're not acknowledging that it's me that's given you all of these good things. And um, then later on, uh, just carry on a little bit further, Steve, um, in, that, in that chapter two. Um, okay, here, yep. It says, I will take away my grain when it ripens and my new wine uh, when it is ready. Um, actually, no, it's not that. Let me, I'll just read it from here. He says, God says, and he's, and he's pointing again to their belief that their good harvest was a reward for what they were doing with, with Baal and the priests of Baal. He says, I will ruin her vines and her fig trees, which she said were her pay from her lovers. I will make them a thicket and wild animals will devour them. Because I will ruin your vines and your fig trees. You thought that, that they came about because of you know, meeting with your lovers in the temple of Baal. You thought that, that was why you were being blessed with, with crops and with grain. And God's trying to get the message. It's not through that that you are being blessed. It's through God. It's through the Lord Almighty that they were really getting all of their blessings. So on the outside, there was a religious language that still spoke of Yahweh, the God of Israel. but inwardly. There was a mixing of pagan practices, pagan worship, pagan belief in a fertility god, a god who was their husband, the husband of the land, and their lover. So they, they had this, this concept of a, a sort of a, a spiritual husband who was husband of the land, mother nature. And out of that, they got all their good. They got their grain, they got their wine, they got their fruit, they got everything. So it's against this backdrop that Hosea is called by God to be a prophetic voice. But we shall see more than just a voice. He was more a prophetic statement and a prophetic picture. He himself was a picture of all the things that he was being called to prophesy, as we shall understand in a moment. Hosea didn't just speak out his prophecy, he lived it. He lived out his prophecy. Against this backdrop of Israel walking out on her true husband, the Lord, and shacking up with this other imposter husband, Baal, God calls Hosea to marry an adulterous, unfaithful wife. So it says he marries a woman called Goma. We don't know much about her. Um, we assume she must have had a reputation. Um, you know, in, in London, where I was from, we might say she was a bit of a tart. I don't know. But she probably had a reputation. And he marries her because God tells him to. Well, that's a, that is a, that's a hard call, isn't it? A hard call on him. God says, marry a woman who's unfaithful. And 
you know, she might have been a temple prostitute, actually. That's, there, there, there's a context there that seems to indicate that might have been the case. But the text seems to indicate that she bore him a son and then had two further children of whom he was not the father. That seems to be the implication of the scriptures as you read them. And God commands him to name them in, according to his own prophetic purposes. So the son gets called God scatters. A prophetic sign of what God was about to do to the Israel. And the other two children, the ones that were not his, God tells him to name them not loved and not my people. That was their name, not loved, not my people. They were not Hosea's children, not loved, not my people. Prophetically of God speaking to his people, you're not loved, you're not my people. That thus far is, is fairly consistent with many of the Old Testament prophecies, telling people of the warning of what is to come if they will not follow God. After this, at some point, Gomer leaves Hosea and goes back to being a temple prostitute. And eventually she is even sold into slavery. Okay, but in chapter 3, um, right at the beginning of chapter 3, the Lord says this, The Lord said to me, Go show your love to your wife again, though she is loved by another and is an adulteress. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes. I don't know what the sacred raisin cakes are. I hope the Portland group haven't brought any for this morning. <laughs> Gary Baldy biscuits? No. Um, but it goes on to say, so I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and about a homer and lethek of barley. Then I told her, you are to live with me many days. You must not be a prostitute or be intimate with any man, and I will live with you. The message of Hosea is a wonderful message. Because in that, God says, even though she has been unfaithful, love her as I love my people. But it was a costly message. It's a costly message for God, and it was a costly message for Hosea. The message is that we, we were once, we are now in Christ, but for all of us and for people generally, we are sinful. Unless God has cleansed us from our sin, we are sinful. We are far from God. We are not being faithful to him. But God, and there's the but God, but God wants to call us back to himself. God wants to draw us back to him and show us love, even though we don't deserve it. Now, for many of us, he's done that. For many of us, we know that. The Lord has taken us back 
We've responded to him. We are no longer sinners. We are righteous, saved by grace. We are made righteous by God. We were once sinners. We are now saints. But for many people, the vast majority of people out there, they're still sinners. They still are rebellious against God. But God says he loves them and wants to draw them back and show us, show them love, even though we don't deserve it and they don't deserve it. Hosea didn't just speak the message. He lived it. He lived it out. When God called his people unfaithful and adulterous, when, when, when Hosea was told to tell people they are uh, adulterous and unfaithful, Hosea knew exactly what that meant and how God felt about it because he would felt that pain too. He knew exactly how God felt because he was living it with his own wife that God had called him to marry. He understood how God felt. And when God says that despite our sin, he loves us and forgives us and will heal us and take us back, Hosea understood exactly how deep love has to be to act like that. Hosea understood how much God must love in order to take us back because he had had to love in that same way, loving a cheating wife, loving an adulterous wife. This wasn't theory. It was reality. He'd lived it. It wasn't a theory, God loves people. It wasn't a theory, people are sinners, people are unfaithful. He had lived it. He'd experienced it with his own wife. Now, we live in similar times in some respect, especially, obviously, in the respect of people generally in this community, in this world, being unfaithful to God. People generally do not acknowledge God or worship him. We know that's true. You know, there is confusion about true belief in the Lord. Even in some churches, there is confusion. You know, truth has become relative and personal. You can have your truth and I can have my truth. That's what some people teach. That's what some people believe. You know, it's okay. You can have your truth. Whatever truth you have, you have that. That's great. I'm going to have my truth. As I say, in Hosea's time, people on the surface still spoke the language of, of Yahweh. But in reality, underneath it all, they went off and did all sorts of things and worshipped in all sorts of ways. Truth has become relative and personal. If you want to believe in Jesus, that's okay. And if someone else wants to believe in Allah, that's okay too. Or if it's Vishnu, or if it's humanism, that's okay. Whatever you want to believe. What's true for you is true for you. And what's true for me is true for me. That's what people believe. They say there's no such thing as absolute truth. To which all you can ask is, is that statement absolutely true? People say all roads lead to God, whatever you might conceive God to mean, of course, in the first place. All roads lead to God, whatever your God might be. That's what they say. It's all nonsense, mind you. It's rubbish. 
But that's what people believe. That's what people say. That can even be what might be said in some churches. None in Weymouth, I think. Well, certainly not the ones that we relate to anyway. <laughs> but we preach an absolute truth. You know, they say all roads lead to God. Sorry, we preach an absolute truth, a truth that is true whether or not anybody believes it. Whether anybody believes it, truth is truth. What's true is true. We preach the truth. And the truth is not a concept, it's not an idea, it's a person, the truth. The one who said, I am the truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. That's the claim that Jesus made. That's what he said. That's a big statement. You know, as uh, C.S. Lewis once said about, about Jesus, you can't just dismiss him as being oh, a good man and a good teacher. Because he made some outrageous claims, some very offensive. People find that claim very offensive. If you say, actually, there is only one way to God, I'm sorry, Islam, you're wrong. There's only one way, it's through Jesus. He's the only way. Now, that is a very offensive statement. Well, me that said it, mind you, it was Jesus. Okay? You can't dismiss him as being a nice, cuddly person who does good. He, he made some offensive statements, which are either true or he is mad. He said it, I am the way, the truth, and the life. There is only one truth, there is only one road, there is only one way, there is only one life, and it is in Jesus. Just as people in Hosea's time were finding other ways, Hosea's saying, no, there is only one way, there is only one God. In reality, it's the same message. And that message, of course, finds its perfection in Jesus Christ. To a society that lost its way and followed a false truth, a false God in Hosea's time, a false husband came God's message through Hosea that God still loved them as a husband loves his wife and calls his wife to return to him. That message finds its perfection in Jesus Christ. And in reality, it is the same message. The message of Hosea is a prophetic forerunner of the message that was to come through Jesus. It, it, it was kind of, it was just giving a little glimpse of the message that Jesus was bringing. Just as Hosea lived out his message, Jesus lived out his message. It's the same message. It wasn't enough for Hosea just to preach the message. God wanted him to live it out. And so in the same way, it wasn't enough for Jesus just to call out the message from heaven. He could have done that. All you people down there, repent. I am the Lord. The whole world could have heard it. He could do that. He's quite capable. But he didn't do that. 
He had to live it out. He came and lived it out. He had to leave the comforts of heaven, as we know, to be born into a dirty stable. Live the frugal existence of a rural carpenter in a very rural society. He had no palace, no flunkies serving him. He lived a very ordinary life in terms of the material things around him. And of course, he had to go to a painful cross of execution in order to communicate his message. He lived out his message, just as Hosea had to live out his message and take an unfaithful wife and show what it must be. You, you know, there must have been people who looked at Hosea and thought, Do you know, does he know who he's taking on? Oh, I'm going to go with her. I mean, there must have been is it people, well, we could have told him, look, she's run off. Well, you know, we knew that was going to happen. We could see that one coming. We could have told him that she wasn't going to stay with him. You know, he must have been stupid in the first place to marry someone like her. Do you not think people were saying things like that about Hosea? I bet they did. Just as they said about Jesus, oh, you know, he was born out of wedlock. You know, his mother was already pregnant before they got married. You know, he had to endure all that kind of stigma, all those kind of things. Jesus had to live out his message just as Hosea had lived out his. His message, Jesus' message, was lived was not just words, but it was lived out in real life and in real death. So we see that great similarity between the story of Hosea and the story of Jesus. But not just there. How is, how is this theme of God being our husband shown in Jesus? Because that was a great theme of Hosea. Baal is not your husband. I am your husband. Well, how is Jesus and the church described? Well, he is the bridegroom and we are the bride. He is described as the bridegroom. We are described as the bride. That same theme, God is our husband. Can you see how precious it is to God that we should be his bride? And he should be our husband. It's precious to God. Do you see how important it is that marriage is highly esteemed, honoured and faithfully kept? Because it's a picture of God being our husband and that we are his bride. Can you see why God's message through Hosea was a message of God's anger and God's Forgiveness. Now, I just want to take you through, if I can just quickly find it. Uh, Hosea chapter 11, verse 4, perhaps onwards. Oh, no, but verse, verse 3 onwards. It says, It was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up in my arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness. It's a picture of a father with a child. I led them 
um, with cords of kindness, with the bands of love. And I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws. I bent down to them and fed them. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king because they've refused to return to me. Now God is, is vacillating. He's going between, on the one hand, oh, I have compassion on you, but I'm angry with you. The sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsel. My people are bent on turning away from me. And though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. How can I give up on you, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My, my compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. For I am a God, not a man, the Holy One in your midst. And I will not come in wrath. Do you see that picture? There's anger. But then God thinks, but you're mine. But I'm angry with you because you keep rebelling against me. But you're mine. You see this, this, the, these emotions in God, just like they might, just like they might in, in the case of a, a wronged, spurned husband, the anger of a spurned husband, but also the love of a, devo a devoted husband. The anger of a spurned husband, but the love of a devoted husband. We see that in the picture of God. He is our provider. You know, as a husband traditionally has provided for his family. Now, today, perhaps there's more of a partnership in this, but historically, it's always been the sense that the husband has been the provider in a marriage context. So God, our husband, wants to be our provider. He wants us to recognize that he is the one who has provided for all of our needs. Now, he may use different ways to make that provision. It may be through the provision of a job. It may even be a society that we live in that provides in some way for those who have no work by giving universal credit or whatever way it might be. There are different ways that God uses. But ultimately, he is our provider. And we need to recognize that all that provision ultimately comes from God. Our employer is not our husband. Neither is the Department for Work and Pensions. God is our husband. He is our provider. What did Jesus teach us to pray? Give us today our daily bread. It's part of what Jesus taught us to pray because it's important for God, it's important to God that we understand that he is our provider. And of course, we also see in the story of Hosea the story of God's redemption. Redemption means buying back. You know, if you go to a pawn shop and you, uh, P-A-W-N, pawn shop, and, and you sell maybe a ring or something, you know, people would do that, maybe short of money, they'd sell a ring and get some money. But then at the end of the month, maybe they had the money and they went back and bought back their 
thing that they told them. They, they had a redemption price. It was a different price. Obviously, it was a bit more. You paid more to get it back than you were given. But there was a, you had to go and redeem your possession. You had to go and buy it back. Those, that would be the label, the redemption price. And that is what God does with us. He buys us back. We are redeemed. That was just what Hosea did with Gomer. She was sold into slavery. Now, I don't know. Um, I don't know the ins and outs of, of society in those days, but it's possible, I suppose, that he had a claim over her in law. Presumably, he still had a document that said he was married to this lady. She's my wife. She belongs to me. I don't know whether he had a, a legal claim over her in, in any case because he was married to her, whatever. He decided he was going to buy her back, even though actually she was already his. She was his wife. Um, and he was hers. Um, and he bought her back. And Jesus has done that for us. He has bought back what already belonged to him. He bought us with his blood. We were bought back out of slavery at great price. Jesus' death on the cross paid for our sins. Now, many of us know this very, very well. We belong to God already. Because we're his creation. He made us. Those wonderful words that James sang earlier today, you know, the, oh, my soul, you know, meet your maker. You, the one who, you know, you were made to meet your maker. Very profound statement that. We were made to meet our maker. The purpose of our existence, to meet the one who made us. It doesn't mean, by the, you know, there's, oh, you're going to meet your maker. You could, no, I mean, it means here in this life as well. Here today, we are here to meet in our spirits, in our souls. We're here to meet our maker. He bought us back out of slavery. He owned us anyway, but he bought us back out of slavery. And, of course, that picture is prophetically foretold in Hosea's life. You know, right at the beginning of this series, Gary told us that the biggest but God was Jesus' death on the cross and rising from the dead cleansing us from all our sins and making us right with God the Father. And we see that clearly, prophetically, pointed to in what Hosea writes. We see that sense of God wanting to buy us back, take us back in, make us his. We see a God who doesn't desire to punish us, but desires that we might turn to him so that he can forgive us and receive us into his presence. But in Hosea also, we see a God who wants to be our provider, our husband, who gives us all that we need. And we need to recognize him as our saviour and as our provider. We were stirred at Commission Prayer that we should not just assume that nobody wants to give their life to the Lord, but that we should give opportunity as regularly as we can to make that possible. Now, I don't know if there's anybody here who has never given their life to the Lord. But I just want to quickly give you an opportunity. I don't want to spend a lot of time on it, but I do want to give you one opportunity today. If you want to give your life to the Lord, if you want to come into that relationship with Jesus, if you've never done that before, for him to be your saviour and your provider, your husband, the one who loves you and takes you back, even though perhaps you've never really walked with God and never really considered him, but you're saying today, yep, I want to do that. 
Okay, if that's you, I'd like you to put your hand up now so we can pray for you. There may be no one, but there may be. So if anyone wants to do that, put your hand up and we'll pray for you. Okay, I've made the invitation. That's all I have to do. The rest is up to you and up to God. That's fine. And secondly, he wants to be our husband and our provider. And maybe there are some of you at this moment in time who are in need of some sort of provision. Maybe there are bills to pay that you are struggling to pay. Maybe you can't see a way forward in your finances. And you just want to ask God about it. If you do, do you want to just uh, indicate that by raising your hand as well? If you'd just like God to provide for you in some particular, it might not be financial, it might be in all sorts of ways. But you, there's, a, there's a sense of God being your husband and your provider. Okay. Yeah, Gary, Shane, Suba. Let's just, uh, shall we all stand? If you're able to, to stand, let's just stand and let's just pray. And we'll finish there. Well, we won't finish. We'll, we'll, I think we've got time for one more song. Lord, those have indicated their need of you, their need of you to provide, their need of you to be a husband, their need of you to be the one who provides all things that we need. Lord, would you, would you surprise us by your provision? Lord, we come to you and say, yes, Lord, would you, would you do it? Lord, would you do it? Would you actually come and do it? Lord, may we have a testimony of what you've done. May Shane have that testimony, Suba. May Gary have that testimony of what you've done. They've stood before you, said, Lord, I need you. I need you to provide. Okay, would you kindly, Father, do it and surprise them and us by your grace and by your excess. Lord, not just, not just providing that, but doing far, much, far more than we can ask or imagine, as the word says. Would you come and do it, Lord? In grace we pray, through your blood, Jesus. Amen.